long, it is easy to find. Just start right to left, Revelation 22, 21, and 20. We're at the tail end of the entire Bible. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6 is where we're really focusing, but I'm going to read the whole chapter for us in just a moment. I'm going to share with you a couple of updates, though, uh, a couple of updates on things that really matter in the life of our church. <clears throat> First, I want to give you an update on the Woodside Royal Oak softball team. Um, <clears throat> I was really highly recruited uh, to be on this team, and uh, a couple of weeks ago, we started the season, and I'm grateful to share with you we are three and one, so we're doing really well, <clears throat> doing really well, and uh, I'm especially grateful to share with you that I have, despite not playing baseball, um, going back as far as the turn of the millennium, um, I have three home runs. Yes, yes. Um, now, before you get too excited about this, you need to know these are all inside the park home runs, um, and a part of the reason I got them is because I have learned along with it being very dangerous for an inactive adult like myself to run full speed, it is also very dangerous to try to stop while you're running full speed. So if I had a good hit, I just keep running and um, don't stop. It's the Forrest Gump rule. And um, just run and keep running. And because of it, I have three home runs. So um, <clears throat> another a couple important stats. I also have two pulled groins and a strained back. So. I might be declaring early retirement despite the success I've had so far. Um, okay, I had to share that with you guys, but um, completely unimportant, but it has been a lot of fun. Another really uh, cool thing going on in the life of our church today is what our kids' ministry calls Move Up Sunday. Um, so this is the first Sunday that our um, almost finished fifth graders um, are now by our church and our kids' ministry and student ministry considered sixth graders. Um, so that means they're, they're done with kids' ministry, and this is the first Sunday that they get to come to big church. Notice how I said that. They get to come to big church and be in here with us. Um, but more important than that, they're now also in student ministry. Our sixth graders are now in our student ministry with middle schoolers and high schoolers. Um, and so I want to uh, encourage us to pray for them, um, regardless of whether you go to a big public school or you do homeschool. Uh, middle school age can be a really difficult time of life uh, for a lot of different reasons. So I hope that we're praying for our young people um, and the next generation of disciples of Jesus. Um, I also hope that you'll take this time to start praying for um, the middle schoolers in your own life and encouraging them over the course of the summer that when fall hits to get engaged in student ministry um, and come under the leadership of Derek Banker, our student ministry director. It's a phenomenal Christ-centered community that's a ton of joy for all of those who participate, um, and now is really the time to be praying for and encouraging uh, the young people in your lives to get ready to make that commitment going into next school year. But it's a big day uh, in the life of our church as these young people take this next step into our ministries. So let's pray for them. All right, Revelation chapter 20. Um, I'm going to read this whole thing. This is the Apostle John. Um, recording his visions from the Lord, the apocalypse, um, and it is intense. I'm going to read the whole chapter, Revelation chapter 20, and then we'll come back and really focus on the first six verses. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, 
holding in his hand also a great chain. And the angel seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and the angel bound Satan for a thousand years. The angel threw Satan into the pit, shut it, sealed it over him so that Satan might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on the thrones were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, those who had not worshipped the beast, those who had not worshipped the beast image, those who had not received the beast mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years." The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Christ for a thousand years. And when the thousand years were ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And the satanic army marched up over the broad plain of the earth, surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived the nations was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and false prophet already were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw on a great white throne him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them to hide. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Books were opened, then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades itself were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. In the last couple of years, Progressive Insurance Company started running a new series of TV commercials. And like a lot of commercials, they're meant to be funny and to grab your attention even though the commercials don't really have anything to do with the product that the company is selling. It's just meant to be funny and cute. So anyway, in this new set of humorous ads, they always feature two characters. Um, in one of them, it's a father and a son. In another one, it's a husband and a wife. But each time, right away, when the commercial starts, there's a dispute between the two characters. For example, the one with the husband and the wife, they're at a campsite, and they're unpacking their car, unpacking all their camping gear, and the husband is digging through the trunk of the SUV where all of their stuff is, but he then looks around the edge of the car at his wife and says, hey, sweetie, I'm uh, not seeing the life jackets. Then the wife responds, well, you should. You packed them. The husband says back, 
No, you packed them. The wife then firmly but calmly turns to him and says, No, you packed them. You said, I won't forget to pack the life jackets. The husband then pulls out a red flag from his pocket, drops it on the ground, and says, I'm sorry, sweetie, but I'm going to have to challenge this. And this, of course, is a play on NFL Instant Replay, you know, where they're interviewing, uh, where they're reviewing whether or not the ref got the right call because in the commercial they have what's called a what really happened instant replay. And they're able to watch the scene from their conversation earlier that day where one of the two of them, the husband or the wife, will be vindicated. One of the two of them, the husband or the wife, will be proved right. Either the husband will be proved right that the wife said she would pack the life jackets, or the wife will be proved right that the husband said he would. And as the commercial ends, you see the two of them stepping away from the replay booth, taking off the headset, and as the husband does so, his head is down, his countenance is low, but the wife has this widening smile of vindication on her face. And through the what really happened instant replay, she was proved right in the end. Now, this is a silly example of vindication, much more silly, much more silly than anything that is written in the book of Revelation. But my hope is to get your minds connected with this experience and with this longing for vindication. Because certainly within the book of Revelation, there is a dispute. It is ultimately the cosmic dispute between good and evil, between God and the anti-God forces that have ever existed. And this morning through today's passage, we're especially looking at this dispute as it existed between God's people and Satan. So throughout Revelation, God's people, the saints, the church, they are in conflict. They are in dispute with Satan and satanic forces. There's a lot of evidence for this conflict, but you really have to look no further than our passage today. Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, God's people are described as, quote, those who have been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. These people who held fast to the truth of Jesus did so at the expense of their heads. The cost of discipleship for them was their lives, their heads. Or think further back to Revelation chapter 17, verses 5 and 6. In this particular vision, John describes seeing the nation of Babylon pictured as a prostitute. Pastor Chris shared with us about this a couple of weeks ago. Here's what John says he saw in that particular vision. On her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, drunk with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So Babylon, which was a stand-in for the Roman Empire, Babylon was drunk with the blood of the saints, drunk with the blood of the martyrs, because you see, that's who was doing the beheading of the faithful, this satanically influenced wicked empire. Um, One, going further back, all the way in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, 
Those who were martyred, those who were killed for the faith, they were already praying, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell in the earth? In other words, they're crying out, Lord, how long till you vindicate us? We know that you're holy and true, so how long until you prove yourself right and prove us right in the face of our enemies? So you feel the tension here. These martyrs, these believers in Jesus, these saints, they were faithful to God. They believed in the gospel. They believed it was true. At the same time, there was a lot of evidence around them that things were not going their way. Things were not going as they should. It doesn't look like their side was winning. And from Revelation chapters 2 and 3, when Jesus addresses the different churches, we know that many of these churches facing persecution, facing martyrdom, they were asking themselves, well, is the gospel really true? I mean, if our lives are going this terrible, are we really believing the right things? Are we really trusting the true God? And even if we are, even if the gospel is true, is it really worth it to lose our lives? And I wonder how you can relate in your own life. As you look around the world, as you look around your life, what evidence do you see that things aren't going God's way? I'm following Jesus, but there's corruption that's hurting my work. I believe the gospel, but there's health factors, physical and mental, that are holding me back from being all that God created me to be. I love God the Father. I'm walking by the Spirit, but there's desires in my heart, desires for love, for acceptance, for connection, for peace. Desires that remain unfulfilled. So how long, God? How long until you prove yourself to us faithful and true? How long, God, until your plans for us are accomplished? How long, God, until your promises for us are completed? How long, God, until our fight with the world, the flesh, and the devil is over? How long? Well, the good news held out to us in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6 is that in the end, God's people are vindicated. In the end, God's people and our struggle with the world, the flesh, and the devil, it is vindicated. So we are toward the end of John's revelation. We are gratefully at the end of this conflict, at the end of this dispute, and God is not simply going to vindicate himself. Oh, he will vindicate himself. Come back next week for the rest of Revelation chapter 20. God is going to vindicate himself and his justice. But not only is he simply going to vindicate himself, he's going to vindicate us, his people, those who remain faithful. And as these verses unfold, we're going to see how this happens. How does God vindicate his followers? First, John describes how our enemy will be humiliated. Our enemy is humiliated before us. So let's look again, starting in verses 1 through 3. Remember, John has just finished describing the second coming of Jesus. 
Riding on his white war horse, Jesus destroys the beast and the false prophet, cutting them down with his word, throwing them into the lake of fire. That rounds out Revelation chapter 19. As the vision continues, John sets his sight on another one of our enemies, not Babylon, not the beast or false prophet, but Satan himself, the evil behind all the evil. He says, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. The angel was holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit. He was holding in his hand also a great chain. And the angel then seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, the one who is the devil and Satan. The angel bound Satan for a thousand years. He then threw him into the pit. He shut the pit, sealed the pit over Satan so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So John sees an angel coming down from heaven and Angels are the messengers of God. They are the emissaries of God. Angels speak and act on God's behalf. In this case, the angel descends from heaven, takes hold of Satan, chains him up, throws him into the abyss, and then caps off the hole that Satan is in. So this is a sufficient capture of the evil one, right? He is chained up, covered up, sealed over, I mean, any one of these things would have been sufficient if the angel had just chained him, if the angel had just thrown him into the bottomless pit, if the angel had just thrown him into any pit and sealed it over. Any one of these three things would have been sufficient. But he does all three to communicate how sufficiently, how thoroughly Satan is here imprisoned. And it says that Satan stays bound up like this for a thousand years. Now, what's this thousand years about? Well, like so much of the book of Revelation, even with much of the details that we're looking at in our passage today, I do not think this is meant to be taken literally. Very often in apocalyptic literature, in all of biblical literature, numbers are symbolic. It doesn't mean that numbers don't symbolize true truth. What's being symbolized is literally true, but the truth that's being symbolized is being communicated in an unliteral way. Probably the most well-known example of this with numbers in the book of Revelation is in Revelation chapters 7 and 14. In those chapters, John says he has a vision of the heavenly multitudes, and he says that they number 144,000. Now, does that mean that there will be only and exactly 144,000 people in heaven? No, that's preposterous. That would be to read the Bible overly literally. Instead, let's think for a moment symbolically. So 144,000 is 12 times 12 times 1,000. I asked Siri this yesterday as I was finishing off my notes just to make sure. Like I got the theology stuff I feel okay about, the math stuff I don't do so often. 12 times 12 times 12 is a th- uh, times 1,000 is 144,000. And you may know that within Scripture, the number 12 is remarkably significant, and it's loaded with meaning, as is the number 1,000, which we'll talk about in a moment. So John is not saying, I literally and exactly saw 144,000 people in heaven. Rather, this is a symbolic number signifying something more than a mere number. Well, I'm convinced that a similar thing is happening here in Revelation chapter 20. 
So what is the symbolism of this thousand years meant to communicate? Well, my sense is that the thousand years is symbolic of the thoroughness of Satan's imprisonment. So think for a minute about the immediate context. John has just finished describing how thoroughly Satan is imprisoned. The angel grabs him, chains him, buries him, seals the hole over. So the thoroughness or sufficiency of Satan's imprisonment is definitely in view here. Furthermore, the number 10 is a number often signifying wholeness or completeness. You think of the Ten Commandments, which begin and are a summary of the whole Mosaic law. Or you think about the ten plagues against the nation of Egypt when God was freeing His people during the Exodus. Ten communicates completeness. Well, Satan was imprisoned ten to the power of three years. For ten times ten times ten years, a really thorough amount of time. I also asked Siri that. Does 10 times 10 times 10 equal 1,000? And she confirmed it does. So that, I think, is what the 1,000 years is reinforcing, the thoroughness, the sufficiency of Satan's imprisonment that is happening here. 10 to the power of 3. 10 times 10 times 10 Satan is imprisoned for. Let me give you another example of this. <clears throat> this past week, my wife was out of the town for a couple of nights, so I did what I can only do when my wife is not home for days on end. You guys got to be thinking, what is he going to confess here? <laughs> I did what I can only do when my wife is not in town. I watched true crime documentaries on Netflix. And I'm not talking about the soft stuff like, oh, Bernie Madoff stole a lot of money. Isn't that a shame? No, I'm talking about intense, brutal crimes. So I watched a newer one called Conversations with a Killer, the Jeffrey Dahmer tapes. It was so good, but it was also so awful. So anyway, towards the end, the last episode, they cover Dahmer's trial as he was arrested. He, of course, was found guilty. And then the sentencing was interesting. He was sentenced by this Wisconsin judge to 15 life sentences. Now, you may say to yourself, like, what good is that, right? Like, who can even serve 1.1 life sentences? Because you only get one. So why punish him with 15 life sentences? Well, this was symbolic, right? He wasn't literally going to serve 15 life sentences. He couldn't. No, these life sentences were symbolic of the 15 murders he was convicted of. And they were symbolic of the fact that he was never going to get out of prison as long as he lived, and he didn't. Interestingly, too, 15 life sentences is right around 1,000 years, if you do the math on that. So I will tell you, don't read Revelation like the Bible code, but just saying Jeffrey Dahmer may be Satan, I don't know, because he was imprisoned for 1,000 years, symbolically. I'm just kidding, don't read Revelation like that. But again, my sense is that's what's going on here. John is writing apocalyptic literature, which is pictorial, it's figular, it's symbolic, it's flamboyant even. It's meant to shock us, to jar us, to stir us up with this vision of how just thoroughly Satan is humiliated. He is bound and chained and buried for a thousand years. Now, here's the other really significant part of this number, Satan being bound a thousand years. So earlier in the book of Revelation, well, we 
well before we get here to chapter 20. As I said before, Satan does a number on the people of God. Persecution, accusation, temptation, and so forth. However, we're told in a couple of different places about the length of time that Satan will have to harm us. So let's look at these. This first one is from chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. John is describing a vision he's received, a vision of God's temple, and he says this, Then I was giving a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise, measure the temple of God, measure the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses. They will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Okay, so he says for 42 months, which is also 1,260 days, the unbelieving nations are going to trample the holy city. If you do the math in your head, that's three and a half years. This again is a symbolic description of God's people being persecuted, and it's for three and a half years. Another example of this, Revelation chapter 12, verse 6, this is now a whole different vision. John sees a pregnant woman who is symbolic of the church. The woman gives birth to the Messiah Christ, just as Jesus descended from the promised line of David and Abraham. He was birthed out of and amongst God's people. Well, also in this vision, there's a dragon, and the dragon wants to kill the child, but he's not able to. The child ascends to heaven. And then the woman, a symbol of God's people, flees the dragon. The woman runs into the wilderness for 1,260 days. Again, this is a symbolic description of the difficult circumstances the church faces now. We are not in heaven with Jesus. We are in the wilderness, fleeing from the devil, and it lasts for 1,260 days, or 42 months, or three and a half years. So in this one vision, the unbelieving nations trample the holy city for three and a half years, in another vision, the church is forced to flee into the wilderness away from Satan for three and a half years. But what's the first thing you notice about the difference between three and a half years and 1,000 years? This is not a trick question. I hate it when speakers ask unanswerable questions. What's the first thing you notice about the difference between three and a half years and 1,000 years? Right, 1,000 years is a lot, lot longer than three and a half years. 1,000 years is an embarrassing amount longer than three and a half years. Oh, Satan, you're going to trample the holy city for three and a half years? How about being buried in a bottomless pit for a millennium? Oh, Satan, you're going to make us flee to the wilderness for three and a half years? Finishing high school takes longer than that. How about we chain you, bury you, seal the hole over for 10 times 10 times 10 years? Who won that fight? So the 1,000 years of Satan's imprisonment is a lot longer than the three and a half years of our struggle here on earth. It's an embarrassing amount longer. Furthermore, in Scripture, the number seven is very significant. I've heard it referred to by many as the perfect number in Scripture, the number seven. And I think the reason people say that is because, again, the number seven symbolizes wholeness or completeness or something being perfected, especially when we think about the seven days of creation. 
So after the seventh day, the creation week was finished. It was complete. It was perfect. Well, another math question, what's one half of seven? Three and a half, that's right. The amount of time that Satan has to persecute us, to accuse us, to tempt us, is exactly half of the perfect number. So this is God's symbolic way of saying that Satan's opportunity, Satan's time torturing the people of God falls well short of where the perfect number is. In other words, it will never reach fullness. It's only three and a half. Later in Revelation chapter 12, verse 12, after the woman flees to the wilderness, there's a voice from heaven that cries out. And this voice says, rejoice, O heavens, rejoice, you who dwell in the heavens. But woe to you, O earth and sea. The devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. Three and a half years. That's all he's got. Three and a half years, the amount of time he has to tempt us, accuse us, and persecute us. It is an embarrassingly short amount of time compared to the thousand years that he will be bound and imprisoned in the bottomless pit. This is how the Apostle Paul famously puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The Apostle is talking about struggles in life, temptation to sin, sickness in our bodies, and he says this, despite all of our suffering, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison of time. As we look to the things as we do not look to the things that are seen, but to those that are unseen, because the things that are seen, they are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The apostle says the affliction we experience in this life, it's momentary, it's transient, it's temporary, it's fleeting. Now, that's not what it feels like, right? This sin struggle that I've had forever, I've had it forever. This sadness and grief won't go away. It won't go away. It's been months. It's been years. This physical ailment I've been diagnosed with, I've had it so long, it's just a part of my life now. None of these things feel momentary. None of these things feel short-lasting. They feel long-lasting. Heard from one of our members this week, she's walking through a trial, and it's lasted so long, she said to me, I'm so frustrated I could scream. Because this trial has lasted so long. Every earthly solution, every spiritual solution has been exhausted, and there's nothing left to do but scream. No, the trials we walk through do not feel momentary. They do not feel transient. They don't feel like three and a half years. But God's word to you this morning, sister, 
God's word to you this morning, struggling brother, is that in the end, we will be vindicated. In the end, our enemy will be humiliated, and his amount of time of suffering will be embarrassingly longer than our amount of time suffering. So as the apostle says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, do not lose heart. By the Spirit inside of you, trusting in Jesus, persevere, endure. How does God vindicate his people? First, our enemy is humiliated. Secondly, our status is elevated. Our status will be elevated. So after Satan is imprisoned in this deep, sealed-over pit, John then continues with his vision, verse 4. He says, Then I saw thrones... And seated on the thrones were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, those who had not received the beast's mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So you see the contrast here. Satan is cast down into the abyss, God's people, the faithful witnesses, are exalted to sit on thrones. Satan is bound and chained, all freedom taken away, no rights, no privileges. The faithful reign with Christ. They rule with Christ. Satan here is buried as though dead, but the faithful here, John describes, as brought to life. They experience resurrection. So essentially, everything that happens to Satan, the inverse, the opposite happens to us. Satan is humiliated, we are glorified. Satan is imprisoned, we are freed. Satan's status as the God of this world and the prince of the power of the air, that status is taken away and God's people sit on thrones, reigning with Christ. In life, the martyrs were thought of so poorly that the world deemed them worthy to lose their heads. But in the end, in the next life, the martyrs are thought of so highly that God deems them worthy to put a crown on those very same heads. So what we're seeing here, friends, is the fulfillment of Jesus' words in the Beatitudes when he said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What we're seeing here, friends, is the fulfillment of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 20 when he said, the first in this life will be last in the next, and the last in this life will be first in the next. Again, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. All those sayings, all those promises of a great end time reversal, they are coming true right here in Revelation chapter 20. Satan is humiliated and our status is elevated. And the truth, the example of this truth par excellence, of course, is Jesus himself. You think of it, Jesus lived a beautiful, compelling, humble, wise, gracious, selfless life. Jesus lived a beautiful life. And how did that work out for him? He was slandered by his enemies, he was betrayed by his friends, and eventually he was crucified by the authorities. That's the way his life played out on earth. But subsequently, he was resurrected, 
And soon thereafter, he ascended to heaven. And since then, despite how terribly he was treated during his life, Jesus has been the most influential human in our entire history. There never has been, nor will there ever be, a more influential man than the Lord Jesus. And we're going to see next week that history ends with the humble Jesus sitting on a great white throne, offering the final word on Satan, sin, and death. So if you just look at the life of Christ, then you see this truth embodied. The way up is down. The way to greatness is service. The way to strength is weakness. The way to glory is to be lowly. The way to resurrection in the next life is death to self in this life. I got to be honest with you, church. I wish this wasn't the way it was. Despite how passionately and confidently I am preaching this, on the inside, I'm like, no, God, why? The only reason I have confidence in preaching this is not because I want it to be true, but because Scripture says that it's true. I wish it wasn't this way. I wish it was just like conversion, glorification. I wish it was just trust in Jesus, then resurrection with Jesus. But that's not his timeline for his dealings with us. It's conversion and then pilgrimage. It's trust in Jesus and then suffer with Jesus. That's the road, that's the process that eventually leads to Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 through 6, and getting a seat on one of those thrones. Those who avoid the lake of fire are those who are refined in the slow process of sanctification in this life. Those who avoid the lake of fire are those who are refined in the slow process of sanctification in this life. We either walk through the fiery trial now, trusting in Jesus, refining our faith, or we face the lake of fire in the end. Either way, we face fire. Church, this is what the book of Revelation is all about. It's not about the buzzing locusts symbolizing the Russian helicopters. It's not about trying to figure out if Hitler was the Antichrist or any other contemporary politician. It's not about identifying if the mark of the beast is in a vaccine. That is completely missing the point. Revelation is about giving us a dramatic, awe-inspiring glimpse of our glorious future so that we will endure with faithfulness the difficulties in the present. And believer in Jesus, you who have been tempted and tried, you who have been tempted and tried, you who have struggled and suffered, your cause will be vindicated. Your enemy will be humiliated and our God will enthrone you, crown you and elevate you and celebrate you forever. <clears throat> That's our destiny. That's John's vision of where we're headed. So believer, endure by the Spirit. Believer, endure with open eyes to this heavenly vision of where this all is headed. There may be a lot of evidence around you right now in your life circumstances, 
in your mind, in your body, there may be a lot of evidence around you right now that we are losing. We are not losing and we will not lose. Our God is unfailing. And this is where the story's headed. For you who have not believed in Jesus yet, this all may be a little bit intimidating. The book of Revelation, I must admit, it's pretty freaky for me too. This all may be a little intimidating. Followers of Jesus being beheaded for their faith. But I want to reinforce for you that the call of the gospel is a call to grace. Salvation in Jesus is not earned. Salvation in Jesus is not purchased by you and your good works or your religious deeds. Salvation is of the Lord and it is a free gift received by grace. And we urge you, come to the cross, come to the empty tomb, and receive the free love of Jesus to cover your shame, to strengthen you in your fears, and to unite us with us, the body of Christ. Come to Jesus for free, for free. On the other hand, yes, the intimidation you're feeling is not totally inappropriate. Because God's grace is free, it is not cheap, though. The cost of discipleship is high. The cost of discipleship is everything. Jesus doesn't just want a part of your life. He wants all of your life, even if it includes your head. Everything you've got to give. So we urge you, come to Jesus for free, but give him all of yourself, and we will gladly welcome you. We will joyfully baptize you, if that's where you're headed. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Church, let's stand as we respond to God's word.